Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. When we spoke with um, Ambassador Ido Moed, he was the ambassador-designate for Israel last Saturday. He's now the full ambassador to this country. Ambassador, good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't. I honestly don't know where to begin because it has been such a terrible, terrible week. And uh, I've talked to people in Israel yesterday. We're just kind of trying to come to grips with everything they've seen and they've heard. And each Israeli person has been affected in one way or another by and directly by that attack. So let me just uh, begin with this. Perhaps you posted an op-ed in the Globe and Mail on your Twitter feed today by Yossi Klein Halevi about there being no good options for Israel in this war. A ground attack in Gaza, for example, poses many risks and dangers to the IDF, to Israeli hostages, and to innocent Palestinian civilians. Would you share with us, please, what your government, what options your government has, and how you're today approaching this war with Hamas and the determination to do away with Hamas so they're no longer a threat to Israel. Thank you, Roy. Um, I have to first start with uh, my condolences to uh, Canadians uh, who were among the victims of this uh, atrocious attack. Um, as time uh, passes and more and more information is uh, revealed, we understand that uh, uh, c- citizens, civilians from around the world were among the victims of this uh, of this attack, and that uh, it appears more and more that what we are dealing with is a, is a monster of magnitude that we have not encountered in the past. Uh, Hamas terrorist organization with ISIS-like practices that, uh, as we also, as we also uncovered in the uh, in, in what we found in the areas and the places where they attacked, came with very clear instructions to murder, kill, kidnap and terrorize the people that they uh, encountered, whoever they were. So they were not just selecting <clears throat> Israelis. They, were, uh, they took with them uh, local workers from Thailand, from Nepal, from wherever, uh, because they wanted to make a point that they don't want Israel to exist there anymore. Uh, so the point that is what we are really doing right now is, is trying to um, create a situation where we fight the Hamas monster and at the same time also keep the people, the population of Gaza out of harm's way. So to your question, uh, we have uh, a unit in the military that coordinates with the international organizations that are uh, uh, active in the Gaza Strip. So that in advance already, because we've had some rounds of fighting in the previous years, we already agreed on shelters for the populations. For the population, so these are locations that we will not attack, um, and they are also aware of our activity. We also created humanitarian corridors for the population to move from an area that is going to be targeted. We informed the population with pamphlets that this area is going to be targeted. Uh, but what we understand on the ground is that the workers of international organizations are prevented from leaving their offices 
population that is on the move is blockade, blockaded by the Hamas, and that the Hamas organization is uh, applying all possible means and measures to keep the, the population in harm's way. And so they, because they hide behind human shield, this is their tactics. Uh, they have nothing to do with the Palestinian political aspirations. They want to have Palestinian victims. That is their victory, people that are martyrs. And I don't know if you saw the, the sign that was carried today in the streets of Ottawa, but it was glorifying the martyrs. So it's just abhorrent that this kind of line and thought exists and actually enters the issue of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at all. This is the Israeli terror conflict, and this is what it's all about. Yeah, Mr. Ambassador, I have seen uh, so many disturbing images over the last week plus, uh, including the the Taliban flag in uh, in Toronto. So, right, it's uh, it's it's deeply concerning what's happening domestically, internationally. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on the pro Hamas demonstrations in this country? Many by university students and student unions, not only them though, and they consider Israelis to be occupiers of Palestinian lands, and they're unabashed in their support for Hamas even after the atrocities committed. What do you make of that, sir? I feel that much of the information that flows around uh, in this day and age of social media and of one line one liners. Soundbites uh, gets lost, and so um, people get caught by uh, wrong information, strange headlines. I would say, but usually very nasty headlines. And I don't think that uh, there is there is a real uh, interest at the moment to delve a little bit further into this into this issue, but we have to do it. We have to stop and think about what is going on here. Um, young people going to a music festival, being brutally murdered, assaulted, kidnapped, and 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 bodies mutilated. That is something that can happen probably every against anybody everywhere anywhere. But this is something that happens here. In, in Israel by Hamas terrorists. And so I, I, I'm, I am sorry for these graphic images that I'm portraying here and picturing here, but uh, when you think about a quiet life in Ottawa or in Toronto and anywhere in Canada, uh, people will go about their lives, but uh, we have to think about people who feel that uh, they should do the most incredible things. And what does it come from? And my thought, to your question is, how can we make sure that in, in social media and other outlets that the information that flows there um, is information that can be that can be reliable? I mean, just to think of it, that uh, somebody in the Gaza Strip uh, claims that ten babies were butchered, or that they use a picture of an Israeli kid that was killed by Hamas bombs among the pictures that Hamas or Palestinian sympathizers put on the web. As a Palestinian kid that is a kid that is a victim of Israeli fire, that's just absolutely incredible. Uh, we should look together uh, how government regulators, how uh, companies, uh, their platforms, the social platforms, work in a way to make sure 
that uh, people are not incited, that people don't get the wrong ideas because at the end of the day, those terrorists were brainwashed. They did what they did because they were absolutely brainwashed. I mean, they had families, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, uh, but they came to see whatever they came to see. They came to act as beasts, as inhumane creatures. And this comes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, from some incredible... Uh, effort to brainwash them. And we could point to some of the reasons we could see that babies being brought up with weapons and uniforms and, and the scarf on the head to kill Jews. And so they've been fed like that. Uh, but this is something that we should all take very seriously because this is not just a, a local problem in the Middle East. That's a, that's a global problem. It is. And Ambassador, I, one of my guests yesterday in Israel was a mother whose daughter almost attended that music festival just to the last moment. She decided not to go, and you could hear the palpable relief in the voice of the mom because her greatest concern would have been that, personal concern would have been that she would have lost her daughter. But uh, let me uh, again quote Yossi Klein Halevi in that op-ed that you uh, posted on X. He says, the Saturday massacre, and I think this aligns with what you just told me, the Saturday massacre was not an expression of desperation, but of genocidal intent. The tactics exposed the goal. Says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely. Word for word. And, and, and at the main point there, the tough choice that Israel faces is indeed horrendous. Because we have somebody who's shooting behind civilians at us, but not just shooting from afar. They, were, they came in and they slaughtered 1,400 people in the most vicious way. So this, is, this cannot continue anymore. This is not something that we should just stop and try to find peaceful ways to, to change. We have to fight this. We have to eliminate this. And we know that there is a price, and we will certainly definitely also pay a price, which we don't want to pay, but we have to. But this is a very sad situation, very tragic. And so I think in this context, the role that the international community plays is so extremely important. And uh, we, we are very uh, grateful for the efforts that the Canadian government is uh, applying uh, First, uh, very clear and strong statements, but also uh, the visit of Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie to the region, a meeting with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Eli Cohen, meeting with uh, uh, Israelis. I think that that is extremely important because it shows a very strong solidarity that Canada has for Israel with all the concerns to application of international law, which we do, and we, we also are very transparent about what we do and how we do it. With all the concerns for the population, for the, um, uh, the threat that they are uh, exposed to because we have to fight these um, inhumane terrorists. Yeah, I was about to ask you about the reception by the Canadian government that you received and the people of Canada and how Canada can assist Israel. But I think you just answered my question. Uh, you are generally, the, the, Israel is is um, pleased with the, with Canada's response and the the, the uh, forcefulness of the response. Yes? Uh, Canada's friendship between Israel and Canada dates a very long way back uh, from, from the times of, of uh, Foreign Minister Pearson and his very strong involvement in peacekeeping forces and all throughout the years. 
So it is uh, no surprise that we hear this very strong support, uh, but it's very, very encouraging to hear it at this moment in time, to hear also the leader of the opposition voice very strong support, to hear it from all walks of life, from the business community, from uh, uh, all kinds of organizations and so on, and to, to have such a broad uh, embrace from the Canadian people, I think that is very, very important because we are in a very, uh, we, are, we are going to face a very difficult period and mm-hmm. this friendship means a lot to Israel and it's certainly not taken for granted. Ambassador Moed, speak to us please about the concerns Israel has about Palestinian civilians who are not involved in this um, directly, uh, but they are in the line of fire because they are in Gaza and you mentioned earlier in our interview that Hamas is doing everything they can to stop them from getting out of there. So what's the Israeli concern about the, the, the civilian population in, in Gaza? Um, a, few, a few issues on that. As I mentioned earlier, of course, there is the uh, military organ- uh, part unit that is responsible for coordinating with the international organizations that is uh, making sure that all the um, efforts that Israel exerts in the, in the direction of the population gets to them in the most direct and quick way. Uh, so what we are trying to do, uh, and by the way, we are also uh, um, calling on the uh, people directly by uh, uh, throwing pamphlets over the area. I mean, just to think of it that uh, Hamas dropping bombs and we are dropping leaflets. leaflets. It's actually, actually the very clear distinction what we think about the population uh, and the Gaza Strip, that they should really uh, understand that we are serious. They know very well that uh, Hamas is embedded in their area where they live underneath their houses and in between them and on top of them. And so the only way to save them is to have them leave because we have to take this infrastructure out. And so um, what we're trying to also allow for is we understand it is extremely important to um, allow for humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip. I may uh, inform our listeners that uh, there are several Gaza Strip is in the shape of a box. And so one side faces the sea, two sides face Israel, one side faces Egypt. And so the sides that are uh, facing Israel, there are they used to be uh, entry points to the Gaza Strip for the shipment of goods for the exit of uh, workers, traders, and so on for exchange, which were open on a daily basis, of course, um, all throughout up until uh, last Saturday. The um, at the moment during the attack, all these all these uh, entry points were destroyed by Hamas, and they are rendered useless at the moment. So the only way to get people or goods in and out is through Egypt. Egypt is concerned about uh, the movement of Palestinians into the Sinai, and so uh, they're also very concerned how uh, to manage this this entry point. But right. we know, and from our side, we want to create uh, humanitarian corridors so whatever goods are coming in will be protected and will not be harmed by incoming attacks from Israel against Hamas. Mr. Ambassador, I apologize that I have to stop the interview, but uh, we always come up against the clock. I do appreciate you coming back on the program, and I hope we can invite you again. There's so many more questions to ask. Thank you very much for having me, Roy. 
What this act has done and many other uh, initiatives of the federal government have done is really try to uh, circumvent uh, the very constitution that uh, that is, is so important to, to this country uh, and most certainly um, circumvent uh, some of the provincial jurisdiction that that constitution protects. Talking about the Impact Assessment Act and the decision rendered by the Supreme Court of Canada, a rather progressive court, might have surprised a few people and maybe including the Premier of Saskatchewan and the Premier of Alberta, who we're about to talk to, the Impact Assessment Act. It seemed to me like the court was saying, yeah, where are your teeth? We're going to give you a little kick in the teeth here because what they did was they said, clearly declared that the provinces have constitutional rights enshrined rights over energy development. The feds have the rights over federally uh, regulated uh, projects, but not provincial projects. I thought that was an outstanding decision. Well, I would have preferred it if they took it a little further even, but certainly was a better decision than might have been expected with a very progressive Supreme Court. I'm getting tired of the word progressive. It's just so they hijack words and they claim them as their own. I don't like it. But who cares what I like? Danielle Smith is the premier of Alberta. Um, she's back with us on the Roy Green, premier, uh, Roy Green Show. Premier, thank you so much. Uh, My big, pleasure. Hi, Roy. B- big day, huh? It was a really big day. And, you know, it's uh, what's interesting about it is I think you, you share the the surprise of a lot of people. I think even the federal government was surprised they lost so soundly. And I'm delighted that they did because a lot of provinces came together, business groups came together, First Nations came together and drew a hard line and the Supreme Court agreed with us. And I was very pleased to see that. Yeah, I, I tweeted earlier today or I X'd, I don't know what to say anymore. Uh, I X'd that the tantrum in the cabinet must have been really exciting to watch if we'd had the opportunity on Thursday. I don't expect you to reply to that. So, um, specifically to your province, to Alberta, that the Supreme Court of Canada declared the IAA to be unconstitutional and a violation of constitutionally enshrined provincial rights on energy development and more. What does that mean to Alberta? A couple of things. I mean, the, op- the upside of me is that it means that uh, we've been right, that the Constitution matters. That's important. And that the federal government is uh, has been acting illegal, illegally for a long period of time, for six years under this act. And they've been increasingly emboldened. I think they felt that they would get away with this and therefore they could keep on digging into provincial jurisdiction. They're going to have to recalibrate now. They're not going to be able to bring through unilaterally an emissions cap on oil and natural gas or emissions cap on fertilizer or emissions caps on methane or tell the provinces how to manage their electricity grid. These are things that have to be done collaboratively, which is what I've been saying all along. I want to work with the federal government on reaching shared objectives, but they they can no longer act as if they've got unilateral power to dictate in our areas of jurisdiction. And we'll be standing firm to make sure that they uphold what the Supreme Court has said. So economically, just from the economics um, perspective, what does that mean to Alberta and what does it mean to Canada in a, in a greater context? Well, I can, I can tell you we have lost tens of billions of dollars of investment because of the uncertainty. The, the one I, I, I made an example of and the one that is, I think, underscores just how dramatic these projects are when they don't have certainty was the, the Tech Frontier mine that was proposed. It would have been a $20.6 billion oil sands project and they pulled the plug because they couldn't see a pathway through 
under this new act to be getting an approval. And so if that's one project that would have been a $20 billion investment, then you have to wonder how many others there are. I know for sure that the reason why I don't have any uh, projects in the queue to build baseload power out of natural gas in our grid in Alberta is because of the uncertainty that the federal government has created. And so we have uh, tens of billions of dollars of additional um, investment that we need to have to build out our grid as we grow, build it out based on what makes sense for our economy. And now we'll be able to put that back on track. And energy, as we know, is is the source of of all industry. And so the the spinoff and knock-on effects of being able to, to get a reliable growing power grid uh, it's hard for me to, to estimate, but we, we are going to assert ourselves in areas of jurisdiction. We are going to build. We are open for business. We will work with the federal government on a 2050 uh, carbon neutrality target. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to, I think, continue to uh, attract investment from around the world. And I'm excited about it. Well, the Trudeau government is hanging on to federal governance uh, by the proverbial skin on their teeth. They know that. You know that. I know that. Canadians know that. Polling tells us that. But they're still determined to move ahead with Stephen Gilbo, the environment minister, saying the Supreme Court of Canada decision requires only a little bit of tweaking of the uh, IAA. It's not a big deal. We'll just uh, we'll just tweak it a little bit and it'll be fine. So it doesn't look like uh, the minister is particularly keen on getting into a negotiation with the provinces. Does that make you, I don't know, I don't want to use the word nervous, but concerned? Well, I guess the way I look at it is that they're, they're trying to put the best face on a pretty historic loss because they've been operating illegally for six years. So I, I gather they, that they would want to downplay this, but we're not going to allow them to downplay this. And we're not going to allow them to make minor tweaks and then make us fight another six-year battle again. We expect them to recognize that the Constitution matters. The highest court in the land has said that the Constitution matters and that they have to abide by it. I don't I don't invade federal jurisdiction. I don't tell them how to run their ports or their airports or their passport services. I wish you um, would. Although, although I wish I could sometimes. But, the, but because I respect federal jurisdiction, I just expect the same thing in return. They should respect our jurisdiction in the same way. Does it do anything as far as empowering the provinces? And I'm thinking about all of them now, but I'll ask you about, uh, I know it doesn't really impact the province of Alberta the way it impacts all the others, but does it empower provinces concerning issues such as the carbon tax? I don't think so. I mean, the, they did in the in the decision say that the decision that they'd made on the carbon tax was a very narrow decision based on a regulatory regime. And so I know that the federal government has used that to be emboldened and they shouldn't because they did underscore again that uh, when we lost the carbon tax debate, it, it was on a very specific program. So, look, um, I think we've recognized that the uh, the federal government has the, the jurisdiction to impose taxes. We knew that beforehand. I mean, they've had a federal fuel tax for a very long period of time. So shouldn't have, uh, I guess, surprised us that they would be able to impose a, a carbon tax regime. But just because they can, um, can impose one type of very specific tax does not mean they can take away every our latitude to make decisions on the whole range of powers that have been given to us under the constitution they're going to they're going to try to argue that they can but they've been stopped in their tracks by the supreme court and i'm i'm looking forward to seeing how my my provincial counterparts take that decision you you will notice we weren't the only province that and led on this. I mean, Saskatchewan, did, mm-hmm. Ontario, Quebec were with us. Mm-hmm. A couple of the Atlantic provinces were with us. I think seven in total. And so they felt exactly the same way about federal overreach, which is why it was a good decision 
because uh, when we get it together at the Council of the Federation, every premier has its own frustrations with the federal government. Ours are pretty specific. We've been pretty vocal about it. But I think that every premier wants the, the federal government to work in a more collaborative and less unilateral way. And you said as well that Jason Kenney's, your predecessor as premier of Alberta, his contribution should not be forgotten. Completely. I was speaking with one of my ministers who said that uh, that the UCP began this challenge even when they were in opposition, because the the government at the time did not, did not take a legal challenge and then uh, managed to gather steam when they formed government. And also, these are expensive challenges, as you can see. Oftentimes, the federal government just hopes someone loses heart or loses interest or runs out of money, and so they it's hard to sustain these kinds of efforts for six years. But in point of fact, the other provinces came on board. Multiple business groups did, like um, Alberta Enterprise Group, the Business Council of Alberta, and others, even First Nations, the Indian Resource Council. And I think that it was the strength in numbers that was, I think, able to make arguments on a, a whole range of fronts. And over, overwhelmingly, the court sided with us that uh, the Constitution matters, provincial jurisdiction matters, and the federal government needs to stay in its own lane. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about uh, what you're looking at and thinking about and proposing, and that is an Alberta pension plan, which will be divorced, I guess, from the Canada pension plan. Well, I can tell you that the discussion about an Alberta pension plan goes back to 2001, when Stephen Harper and several others wrote a firewall letter talking about the ways that we could assert our constitutional rights in the same way that Quebec has. Quebec has its own pension plan. They also have a provincial police. They collect their own taxes. They have their own um, immigration system and various other things. And so the whole conversation that's happened in this province for some, I guess we're going on almost 25 years now, has been how can we uh, assert ourselves in our areas of jurisdiction? There was a, a panel that began this uh, before my time back in 2019. And as a result of what Albertans said, they wanted us to look at the report and look at the legislation and see what it would, or develop a report and look at the legislation and see what it would mean. And that's what they did. So I feel like I'm just finishing the, the work that had begun and that Albertans had asked us to do. And now it's up to Albertans to decide, having looked at the, the act or having looked at the amount of dollars we'd be entitled to, uh, whether or not they, they want to go forward with it. I mean, I, I hope the rest of the country understands why Alberta is so frustrated. The fact that Albertan, Alberta, which only has four and a half million residents, is entitled to 53% of the amount of money that's in the current CPP is because we've over-contributed. We continue to over-contribute. And then those over-contributions compound. And I, I guess the question should be asked is, why is a small province with only four and a half million people consistently expected to carry the freight on every single federal government program? Because the federal government does this to us all the time. They overtax us. And then they do not deliver back an equivalent amount of benefits. And that's what I think Albertans are frustrated about. So that's part of the conversation we've been having a long time. And we would like a new relationship with the rest of the country. We'd like a new relationship with Ottawa. It's part of the reason why our citizens passed a referendum asking to renegotiate equalization. The federal government ignored it. So I think you will see that I'm going to act on those areas where I do believe I'm getting a mandate from the people. And we'll see if they want to have a referendum on this, set up our own pension plan, then they'll make that decision in a referendum. Is a wider Middle East war involving Syria, this Hezbollah and uh, in Lebanon, and perhaps other actors possible uh, challenging Israel, may Israel be fighting on a, a sort of a, a three-front 
reality. Might that eventually draw in the United States and other allies of Israel already supporting Ukraine and its war with Russia? Would Canada have a role of any kind? This is getting really scary, eh? I don't want to frighten you too much. I'd like some context to this. By the way, simultaneously, Canadian Armed Forces members are relying on charity to supplement food and housing costs. That's a disgrace. My guest, and we're always uh, honored to have him with us, is Vice Admiral Mark Norman, Norman uh, former Chief of Staff of the Defense, um, Vice Chief of Staff of the Defense Staff, and Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. I get nervous when I talk to admirals. I was an ordinary seaman standard, Admiral Norman. I get nervous. You make me nervous. <laughs> well, I don't mean to do that, Roy. Uh, hopefully, we can we can work through that. We, we've talked enough. <laughs> I hope so. Good afternoon to Good you, afternoon. listeners. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Let me ask you this uh, about Hamas brutality, the brutality of its attack last Saturday. Did that surprise you, the attack itself and their tactics? And what does this signal to you? This has to be more than a one-time assault by a terror group. Yeah, well, it, I mean, like many people, um, I was shocked uh, both that it happened, but in terms of the nature of the attack, it was um, very well choreographed. Um, very well planned and uh, uh, as uh, brutally executed, it, w- it was actually well executed from a, a coordination perspective. So I think that caught a lot of people um, by surprise, including the Israelis themselves. And I think it, it is a reflection uh, of the fact that uh, this is not like other terrorist organizations that um, the West has dealt with over the last several years. There's, this is more structured. It's more hierarchical. It's integrated with um, the, the government itself um, in uh, in Gaza, the occupied territory, and so it's kind of a it's a bit of a hybrid, um, and and that makes it uh, that much more challenging. So we we can't treat it in the way that other terrorist threats have been treated over the last uh, ten to twenty years. Admiral Norman, how do you respond to this kind of situation, and this situation in particular, when you've got so many people in Gaza, civilians, who Hamas is trying to keep there, doesn't want to let them leave, and uh, and, and they could be in the line of fire. And I'm, I'm thinking about uh, conventional warfare. It's not as, it's not as easy as uh, two armies siding, uh, you know, up against each other, which has been the traditional response. Now there's the issue of urban warfare. That's becoming, I think, more of a concern. But uh, share with us, please, your thoughts. And Israel does have to respond with full military engagement. They, they need to go and get Hamas. Huh? What are the complications that you see? Yeah, well, you've touched on a few of them already. I mean, first of all, let's look at this uh, from the perspective of um, this, this is Hamas's home turf. Um, they're, they're dug in. They're rooted in. Uh, they have an extensive network of tunnels. They'll have their own infrastructure uh, designed to support uh, their interests. Um, the community itself, although uh, not everybody is going to be supportive of uh, Hamas directly, the reality is that they'll have enough supporters uh, in the city that uh, they, they, uh, they'll be able to find refuge wherever they choose to. Um, and uh, Israel hasn't been in there in any significant way for, well, probably a couple of decades now at least. And uh, this is not ideal territory for, um, as you described, for what are traditionally formed 
um, units of, of armies. And this is why, over the last little while, the the responses to previous attacks have typically been airborne, uh, bombings, missile attacks, those kinds of things. So the idea of going into a, a densely populated city controlled by your enemy uh, in order to root out your enemy um, while you have to take care to uh, minimize the casualties to the civilian population. I mean, th- this is this is a very, very difficult problem. And I think that's partly why um, we, we haven't seen any uh, movement into the city yet, because I think the Israelis are legitimately um, um, kind of scratching their heads to some respect as to how they're going to do this. And what is their actual goal? The stated goal of... Um, destroying Hamas, okay, fine. I think everybody understands that, but in practical terms, uh, that, that's easier said than done. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see a lot over the next uh, days and weeks and months, more than likely. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the possibility of this becoming uh, the prospects of this becoming a wider war developing in the days and weeks ahead, particularly if an Israeli ground attack into Gaza causes many civilian Palestinian casualties. Do we then see Hezbollah moving south from Lebanon? Do we see Syria getting involved? Uh, What are your concerns about this potentially becoming a a wider war in the Middle East with Israel fighting on three fronts? Well, I think the risks you've described are are valid, and and just uh, discuss those briefly. what I suspect we're going to see is obviously the broader world will be watching uh, what Israel does very carefully. But uh, those those um, entities, those other terrorist and militant entities uh, in the region will be also watching very carefully to see whether there's a, an opportunity for them or whether they feel that uh, Israel has uh, gone too far, whatever motivation they'll be seeking. Um, it is a concern. It, it's, uh, you know, Hezbollah, um, it, it, as for the moment, seems to be, um, although they, they're, they're not being completely silent or, or inactive, uh, they haven't done anything uh, significant up to this point, but that doesn't mean that they may not choose to. Um, and of course, that has broader implications with respect to um, Lebanon. I think Syria, from the state of Syria's perspective, I think is is less likely. But there are a whole bunch of uh, factions within Syria that that are uh, basically proxies for for other interested parties, including Iran, um, that we could see. Um, you know, again, looking for opportunities or exploiting opportunities. Um, as this this unfolds. So um, it's not a specific answer, but to say uh, everybody's going to watch what Israel does and um, and the, the forces that uh, are obviously um, against Israel are, are going to look for any opportunity they can to either make things worse or to potentially, um, you know, pile on uh, in support of, of their uh, their so-called uh, brothers and sisters. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to call them the wild card, but there's also Iran in this picture, and they vow to destroy Israel. And Israel certainly has Iran in its sights. If this situation were to, well, it's a terrible term, mushroom, but I'll use it. Is there the danger 
of other nations, and I'm thinking particularly of nations aligned with Israel, like the United States, which has a, uh, you know much more about this than I ever will, but has its newest carrier task force off the coast, making a very clear statement. Is there a possibility that, for example, the United States would enter the fray, and then we don't know what would happen after that? Yeah, I think I think we need to um, slow down a bit. Not, well, it's just you know uh, there, there's there's not much good that'll come from looking at worst case scenarios, and I don't mean to shut shut down your imagination, but I think it's important for your listeners that we we kind of put this in, in a bit of context. The, the United States has deployed now a second carrier uh, and supporting vessels into the Eastern Med for for the reasons of deterring. The kinds of things that you're describing, uh, clearing, sending clear signals to um, Iran and others in in the region that uh, they're there, they have an interest in being there, and they intend to support Israel. Now, um, as it relates to Iran specifically, my sense, and and I'm not an expert, but my sense is that um, Iran um, they're they're smart enough and cagey enough to um, get others to fight their, this battle on their behalf. They're, they're going to um, support and bolster uh, proxies um, in, in this conflict without um, allowing themselves to be drawn directly into a conflict with, um, with Israel. Um, and, and that's kind of the way their playbook is written to some respects. And, and I think that the United States are watching that very carefully. I think the United States is probably um, a little annoyed that you know they 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 showed um, some generosity and benevolence towards Iran over the last couple of years in an attempt to try to cool relations, and now we're seeing that Iran can't be trusted. So um, th- that that's that's a broader sense, um, but I think you know watching Israel and how they react to this, and Israel has every right to respond, but they also have to respond uh, in a responsible fashion. And I think that's what uh, many of their uh, partners in the broader community will be looking at. So let me flip something around here, Admiral. I don't want to let my imagination get the best of me. I have this chess game going on in my head, this geopolitical chess game is going on all the time. Um, what are you looking at? What is of particular interest to you of this in this developing situation I'm I'm looking more broadly. I'm looking at uh, some of the other global players and how they're exploiting the situation. I'm watching Russia very carefully. I'm watching um, China. Um, and when I say watching, I'm, I'm just I'm keeping you know a weather eye, as we would say, on that that uh, broader uh, stuff. Because you see, this is sadly one of those situations where. Um, you know, as the United States uh, becomes um, drawn into the Middle East once again, and this is a recurring um, challenge for the United States, uh, they're they're somewhat distracted from um, some of the, the broader challenges that have been emerging over the last little while. And it's not to say that uh, that, that anything bad um, is going to happen, but I think there's opportunity here for. Uh, countries to exploit um, the focus of the United States um, elsewhere, in this case on Israel, while they pursue whatever objectives they want to pursue. Okay. How fragile 
is global stability now? I won't call it global peace because that doesn't exist. But how fragile is global stability? Um, well, you know, I think this is this is uh, an unfortunate um, indicator of of a continually fracturing system, uh, as you and I have discussed previously. And in no way am I diminishing the significance of this. I, this is this is an incredibly uh, tragic. Uh, a series of activities that's playing out here, but um, I, I think it's part of a, a bigger problem. Um, I am pleased to see China calling for, you know, both parties to step back and a ceasefire. I mean, that is the responsible way for for China to behave. But um, you know, the Ukrainian problem is not going away. In fact, this may provide some uh, potential respite for for Putin and, and his agenda. Uh, certainly, as it relates to the relationship with the U.S., so um, it, it is a it is a tough place to be right now, and unfortunately, um, there are way too many potential problems to keep an eye on simultaneously. That's my concern. And again, points to what you and I have talked about on quite a few occasions, and that is the need to properly equip, properly. Uh, uh, not, I won't say train, but properly equip and make sure that our Canadian armed forces are capable of doing the job they're tasked to do and not have members of our military appealing to charities for food and housing support, which I think is a disgrace and it's going on now. But we need to, uh, the governments, all the political parties, all the governments need to agree on this, uh, Admiral um, Norman. This is not a, This is not a mystery. No, it's not. And as you and I have discussed, uh, this is uh, unfortunately uh, the result of decades of um, apathy and uh, underinvestment. And, um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the last few years have probably been worse than others for many reasons, um, this is a broader national issue. It is a strategic issue. It is not just um, a political issue that that's associated with any one you know party over the other. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't I, I struggle with trying to imagine how we can get people to understand that we have obligations, we have responsibilities, both um, moral, ethical and in some respects, legal obligations to, um, to, to do our part. And we're just failing to do so. And uh, we, we don't have the bench strength that we need. And, and that's a real problem. And as you mentioned, the people that we do have who are prepared to put themselves in harm's way uh, to defend uh, their fellow Canadians are, um, are suffering. Uh, they're suffering in the same way that many Canadians are suffering but uh, the difference being that uh, that they're 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 willing to sacrifice themselves for the country that doesn't appear to understand um, the importance of the work that they have chosen to do. Yeah, Admiral Norman, thank you so much for the time. I'm not I'm not nervous when I talk to you. It's just that you were an ordinary seaman standard. You got to be Vice Admiral Mark Norman. I was an ordinary seaman standard when I entered, and I was an ordinary seaman standard when I left. So. <laughs> Well, look, Roy, I appreciate your service to Canada. I appreciate everything you're doing. 
to uh, keep these these uh, important topics uh, thank you, sir. top of mind. So thank you to you and your listeners. Thank you for your service. Always an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to my next guests. He's been a friend for a long time, former airline captain, Air Canada captain, flew the big ones, 777s, Raymond Hall. Raymond, I'll ask you to just hold on. Just, just stay where you are, please, because I want to play something. Uh, it's 90 seconds in duration. I, I played, uh, played back New York Mayor Eric Adams' speech, the four-minute one, that he delivered in New York last uh, Tuesday, the We're Not All Right speech. I've had a lot of response to that at Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. A lot of response. People asking me to play it again. It'll be on, on our website, uh, globalnews.ca slash Roy Green. But here's a, here's a cut-down version. It's shorter, obviously, than the original. Have a listen. We are not all right when we see young girls pulled from their home and dragged through the streets. We are not all right when we see grandmothers being pulled away from their homes and children shot in front of their families. We are not all right when right here in the city of New York you have those who celebrate at the same time when the devastation is taking place in our city. We are not all right when Hamas believes that they are fighting on, be, on behalf of something in their destructive, despicable action that carried out. We are not all right when we still have hostages who have not come home to their family. We are not all right. And we're not going to say we have a stiff upper lip and act like everything is fine. Everything is not fine. Israel has a right to defend himself, and that's the right that we know. Your fight is our fight. Your fight is our fight. And right here in New York, we have the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. This is the place that our voices must raise and cascade throughout the entire country. We will not be all right until every person responsible for this act is held accountable. And we don't have to pretend. The mayor of New York, Eric Adams, last Tuesday, we are not all right. That speech has uh, just generated a tremendous amount of response. Tremendous amount of response. Okay, um, our good friend Raymond Hall, former Air Canada captain and a lawyer, human rights lawyer, former head of the Air Canada Pilots Association, joins us. Raymond, I, I know that you have a great affinity for, for Israel. I'll ask you about how airlines deal with, with, with war zones in a minute or a few minutes. But when you listen to, uh, to uh, Mayor Adams, when you think of your own experiences in Israel, and I'd like you to share some of that with us, please, your experiences in Israel, what, what you saw, um, where you were. Uh, but in the context of what's happened over the last week plus one day, just, just share with us what, what you're thinking, please. Thank you, Roy. Well, I started uh, operating flights to Israel in 1996 and uh, through uh, 2007. I operated over 200 flights and traveled there 
with my family on vacation several times as well. Uh, I was there during the first and the second intifada. Uh, I traveled around uh, most of the country, including uh, Jerusalem. I visited the Yad Vashem uh, Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, the old one and the new one, several times. I was there when suicide bombers were tearing apart restaurants uh, right on the beachfront in Tel Aviv. I went into the restaurants uh, a couple of weeks later and actually spoke with the people that were still working there that had been witnesses to the uh, events there. And I don't know how anybody describes that situation. It's uh, the issue about terror in countries, and Israel is certainly not the only one, but obviously the worst example right now of uh, the cruelty of some humans to others. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fact of life that we have to deal with, and I think uh, that we have to uh, deal with it properly. And uh, I don't want to get into the politics of the situation right now, but just the, the human suffering is, is so, uh, so visible, so, so pure, yeah. so deep, that it, you cannot come out of there without feeling uh, absolute disgust for, for what has happened. You know, I, I will never forget. I mean, we've had some interviews over the last two days that are really remarkable and memorable. But I will not forget what one of our guests in Israel said yesterday, that her daughter was going to go to that concert. And uh, at the last minute, she decided not to. And It was a life-changing moment. It uh, was. Uh, like the, the mom's relief, Raymond was palpable. She said, you know, my daughter could be could be dead now or a hostage. Or worse. Or yeah. worse. Yeah. And that and that was a spontaneous decision from what I recall her saying that her daughter just decided not to go. And there were hundreds who didn't make that decision and yes. uh, and look at the results. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Tell tell, tell us what uh, about your uh, visits to well, you were evacuated from Israel at one time, were you not? Yes, one I, of was, I was in, uh, on a four-day uh, layover in Tel Aviv uh, when uh, George Bush was working the build-up to uh, the invasion of Iraq, and he issued a 48-hour warning to Saddam Hussein. And, of course, the airlines have uh, basically one concern, and one concern only. It's the safety of uh, especially the crews, but also their passengers. So it should not be surprising that uh, Air Canada and all of the other, almost all of the other airlines uh, that operate through those difficult areas uh, uh, terminate their flights. And uh, some of them even terminate their uh, evacuation flights. Uh, so uh, I was uh, told to uh, get back to Tel Aviv. I was down in uh, Elat uh, because it's uh, two days away from my uh, scheduled flight to return. And I was told to get the back to uh, Tel Aviv right away, and I would be deadheaded out to uh, Cyprus, which is an hour and 20 minutes away by flight. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I couldn't make it. I was two to, uh, a day away, so they had to make all the arrangements for me. But the, the entire crew was evacuated. And uh, that was, it was just a, a threat. It wasn't an actual war. In this circumstance, uh, it, where you actually have shells landing close to the Tel Aviv airport, it's not surprising that everything gets shut down and that uh, people get trapped. You know, if we get evacuated in this country, it's because usually because of natural disasters, not because somebody's trying to put a bullet in your head. Um, and, and, and 
evacu- being evacuated itself must be traumatic enough because you see, you know you're seeing you, 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 the circumstances that you were in. You saw what was going on on the ground. Um, it's, trauma- it's traumatic for people who see massive fires engulfing their communities. But but this when when you have what you what you experienced and what the you know what the people uh, in Israel have experienced over the last week and and beyond that, but we're looking specifically at the timeline of last Saturday to today. Uh, it's just it's it's grotesque. It's absolutely grotesque. But I was going to well, ask you. The, yeah, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, ahead, Raymond. Go ahead. I, I can't compare my circumstances. It was a threat, and uh, it was very logistical operation, get get back to Tel Aviv and get on a flight and leave. Uh, there was no immediate danger as far as I saw it. And besides, it was still within the 48 hours that George Bush had given to Saddam Hussein. So there wasn't that big urgency. Mm-hmm. But compare that now, where you actually have rockets landing in, in Ashdod and, and right in Tel Aviv, uh, where there is a threat. There's sirens going off continuously. And people can't get away. There, there's no escape from that. That's That's the real threat. Yeah. You know, you'd have to be inhuman if you didn't also have great concern for the civilians um, in Gaza and uh, on, uh, you know, on the West Bank who, well, that's not directly in line of the Israeli military, the the IDF, but but Gaza, isn't there lots of people there? There are thousands and thousands of people, and this is a densely populated part of the world who have nothing to do, want nothing to do with Hamas, and they find themselves in a in a in a very very uh, compromising, dangerous reality. And I spoke to the ambassador about that earlier. So, and you've been to uh, you've been to Ramallah, right? I, I was in Ramallah. I went there when Yasser Arafat was in his headquarters. I, I hired a uh, Palestinian individual, didn't tell him about my background, other than that I was an airline pilot. He had no idea that I had any affinity towards Israel. And he took me through, and I felt very safe traveling with him. Uh, I spent a whole day there, uh, just uh, uh, about six months after the uh, Israel, uh, Israelis turned over the compound in Ramallah to uh, uh, Yasser Arafat. And uh, there were building after building that were just bombed out because of the response of Israel to what the PLO had done. And I, it, it, it's a very vivid image to see all of these windows shattered, to see uh, cannonball shells through the walls, and to actually experience the, uh, the uh, after effects of uh, the aftermath of uh, of these traumatic events, and and to be very thankful that in Canada we don't have to, have to deal with that very much. But I wanted to see it so that I got a perspective of how the situation really was. It's one thing to get it off the television; it's another thing to be there in the buildings that are absolutely destroyed. Yeah, I was uh, when I was in the uh, RCNR, the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve. Um, they took us to College Militaire Royal Saint Jean in Quebec, you know, I got to see what um, what massive firepower can do. And this was, this was controlled. This was training, right? So nobody was in any danger. Well, I suppose if there are live rounds around, you're in some danger. But uh, it's minimal, almost non-existent. But then when you go and inspect what, uh, what a round from an RPG has done or a round from a tank has done or... You know what grenades can do. Uh, you go, oh my God, this is this is serious stuff. 
And, on you know, the airline it, it's, segue, it's there's another chilling. issue here that I don't think anybody's touched on yet. Uh, and that is the fact that the insurance companies for the airlines have, uh, for, for the most part, precluded the airlines from going in on rescue flights. Uh, for example, Norwegian Airlines had some uh, rescue flights scheduled, and, um, and the insurance company said, no, we, you go there at your own risk. And I'm, I'm assuming that the same applies to United and Delta and others. So that's a real impediment to being able to solve the problem mm-hmm. of the uh, evacuation. Yeah. So, so the airlines would have the responsibility for the crews. They have the responsibility. Well, they have the responsibility of the passengers or people who want to get out. But uh, it's a commercial enterprise, and uh, they're protecting their investment, and they're protecting their crews. I think we understand that. But there are military flights, and uh, that's a whole different uh, situation. Tell me something. How difficult, how difficult is it to get a plane to fly from Tel Aviv to a destination in Canada? Uh, well, we operated the 767 from Toronto and Montreal to Tel Aviv uh, before the 777 came online in 2007. Uh, it's a 12 and a half hour flight uh, going over there and about a 12 hour flight coming, uh, no, the other way around, about a 12 hour flight going over there and 12 and a half hour going back because of the winds. Uh, but the 777 uh, and, and particularly the 787 can operate up to 16, 17 hours. My flights from Toronto to Hong Kong, for example, example, were 15 and a half hours nonstop right across the North Pole and through Russian airspace. Now they're even longer because you can't go through Russian airspace, but uh, it's not difficult to operate uh, a a 12-hour flight on any of these larger craft these days. Yeah, so that's what I was saying, that the Canadian government was picking up, finally started picking up Canadians and taking them out of uh, Israel, those who wanted to leave, and they were taking them to to Athens, which is a two-hour flight. From Tel Aviv, I think two hours and ten minutes. I checked that out, and and then just dropping them off, just fly them to sure. Canada. They, they have the model Airbus. It's called the CC one fifty, and I'm not sure what the range on that aircraft is. It's, it's like a big three twenty, maybe a three thirty, uh, and uh, it probably could get across the ocean. But I think their primary uh, interest in going only to Athens was to do as many flights as they could to get back and forth to uh, Tel Aviv to get as many people yeah. out. And, and uh, that was most more than likely the, the thinking. You're generous. Than- You're very generous, Raymond. They had days to do that. And they finally, it took them days to get it done. And Canadians in Israel were telling us and, uh, and have been speaking nationally about the miserable performance of the Canadian authorities at the embassy. Anyway, we don't want to get into all of that. Uh, Raymond, what happens with uh, with flights now and, and in in countries close to Israel, like, uh, well, Lebanon? Well, Lebanon could be involved if Hezbollah uh, decides yeah. to move. What about uh, countries like uh, Jordan and Egypt? Well, uh, the, I, I'm really not sure, uh, Roy. I, it, um, until we see evidence of escalation uh, anywhere further afield than, than right on the Lebanese border, uh, I, I don't think there's any restriction on the airspaces there. I know uh, that the um, head of American Airlines has declared uh, Israeli airspace unsafe. Uh, but even just uh, Cyprus, outside of the range of the uh, the rockets from uh, Gaza, that's not declared unsafe, and and it's, it's like uh, 300 kilometers away uh, or so. 
And uh, so I, I would expect, and, and when there were hostilities uh, early on in Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the transcontinental flights used to just bypass that airspace. Right now we're bypassing Russian airspace because we're not allowed to travel through it, right. that sort of thing. So, so it costs more fuel. Okay. You have to take a longer route, but I don't think there's any issue about safety with those, those types of proximate countries. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 